Welcome to episode 242 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Are you ready for affirmations and denials? I am. I am. I, okay. I, you know I am, because our little like two-second pre-recording conference, I was like, I'm ready for affirmations and denials now. That's true. And you That's just saw everybody pre- in behind the behind the curtain so it seemed yeah. like i was like just preempting that like i was just coming out no. we were just having a casual no. totally impromptu conversation mm-hmm. and now they know the secret but that's the only thing about our conversation that's not <laughs> impromptu other than a topic <laughs> so. that's true we, we always double check that it's always like hey you got affirmations and aisles hey you got affirmations yeah. all right let's do it and then usually we remember to double check the episode number and sometimes we remember to confirm the topic that we're talking about ahead of time that is the extent of our planning. Yeah. And people should know, our lovely listeners should know that I think we mainly do that because the number of times I've messed up the episode number coming in is definitely non-zero, more substantial than you might think. How the, hard is it? The but limit from week does not to week, exist. Yeah. From, <laughs> from week <laughs> to week. You just never know what I'm going to say with the episode number. And then we joke about the episode number being something ridiculous. Like I'll say, what is this, 564? And you'll be like, no. And then, which is your way of saying don't say that when we start recording i would think if you go back and you calculate all the times that i've had to like like patch an episode where i've had to like go back and fix something probably like 90 percent of them are uh saying the wrong episode number for sure so luckily it's an easy thing for me to fix but it yeah it, it it's more common than we might like to acknowledge for sure so before we get into those lovely affirmations and denials on this episode I want to mention that we're still knee deep, that's my saying these days, in our series on Providence. And what's coming up, what's on tap is Providence and evil. I mean, we're yes. going to get after it today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's an important topic. It's a difficult topic to discuss. Um, you know, every every position on it has their proof text and it it's important to have your proof text. But I, I think I'm excited because we can kind of really talk through some of the common texts and talk through in light of what we talked about last week about how God sometimes operates within sort of the providential ordering of things. Right. Uh, it, this is a good contrast about how he never operates within the providential order of things. So I'm pretty excited to uh, to get into the topic. That was an amazing teaser, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. You set that up just right. Like it was just enough where I leaned in, like, tell me more. I know. Yeah. And then Marvel, you were like, if you need help with creating teaser trailers, you know where to find me. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Actually, I would be isn't terrible that, at that. I'd be wait, like, just wait, put the whole movie on the internet. Isn't that kind of, <laughs> isn't that kind of their thing though? Cause my wife who is, is much more versed in yeah. the Marvel movies. She always waits till after the credits to see the thing, whatever, oh, yeah. whatever they show, like 30 seconds, 20 seconds of something. That's what we just did there. I'm not even talking about that, that element. I'm just talking about like the trailer they put up on YouTube, the after credit scenes. That's like an art form. Yeah, apparently we're, yeah. so we'll, we'll have to take some cues from that. So let's do affirmations and denials. I'm going to switch it up. Can I go first? Is that cool? You may. Thank you all for right. asking so, though. <laughs> I listen, this is all love on this podcast. It is the <laughs> podcast of brotherly love. So it we is. have to make sure it's that true. we're we're actually affirming that. So I'm coming out hot, like straight out of the gate, unapologetic affirmation. And it's a book and it's a book that I think everybody should read. I don't often say that because it's so cliche for somebody just because excited about something that excited them to say, everybody should read this book. There's plenty of things you and I've recommended, whether technical or of a different variety where we said like, 
not everybody might enjoy this, but like, it's certainly powerful. This is not yeah. that book. Everybody should read this book. It's Shai Lin's new book called The New Reformation, Finding Hope in the Fight for Ethnic Unity. And you and I were just talking about this and I was getting fired up before we started hitting the, or before we hit the record button, that this is just an amazing work. This is the kind yeah. of thing that I can only entrust to Shai Lin because if you are a standard kind of middle socioeconomic status, like white dude, like me, and you're concerned about what's going on in our world with, with just understanding ethnic identity and relationship and justice. The problem I have is I don't know whom to trust. Honestly, I want a firm biblical perspective and I want to understand how God would counsel me to love one another yeah. and to worship him and be bound together while at the same time affirming that he's created all of these tribes and nations. And that of course that is some way reflects his glory and the unification of those tribes and nations, especially in the new heaven, and new earth will be something that will manifest his immense glory. Shylin does that and more. And I would say that I appreciate this book so much because as a kind of just run of the mill white dude, it both affirmed who I was. It did not make me feel guilty at the same time, it made me say, I'm a Christian and I need to get about this kind of ethnic yeah. unity, that that is something tremendously important. So he checked all these boxes. I actually think he was somehow able to bring together, here's some things that are in this book. He talks about his biography, his own kind of journey of faith and how he was saved, which is exceptional. I'll let you read that. He has a whole chapter on whether or not why he would continue to read the Puritans, knowing that some of the Puritans were slave owners. He actually unpacks that in a profound way that's super interesting and really helpful. And then he also basically poses the question to Reformed theology, was there something in Reformed theology that somehow ingratiated slavery into those of a particular ilk or era that were connected with slavery? I will leave that all for everybody else, Leah. I hope that's piqued their interest, but you're going to find in this work some tremendous things to take away and some really lovely scriptural-based approaches to ethnic unity. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I think um, anytime you break the world up into, like, two categories of people, you are typically missing most people, right? Because th it's the fallacy of the excluded middle, right? There's, there's right. this kind of person and there's this kind of person. And never the twain shall meet, and there's nothing in the middle. In reality, most people actually are in the middle of those. And so I think in in the conversations related to race and social justice and all of these these buzzwords that you hear, sometimes we get this picture that there's like the people who have bought critical race theory hook, line, right. and sinker. Hook, line, and sinker? Yeah, that's right. Hook, line, and sinker. It. You can tell I fish all the time. Uh, <laughs> hook, line, and sinker. And then the people who... Uh, think racism is just not a thing and it's all made up and that there isn't any racism. Right. And those are, those are like two poles on the categorization and, and it, you get this image that there's like not really anybody in the middle. And so if you hear someone that seems to be concerned about issues that are going on in our, in our country, especially, but then as in the world as a whole, they get painted as like, Oh, you're one of those critical race theory people. Or if you say like, well, yeah, but like this, this idea that like people are this composite of their oppressive classes or oppressed classes. And that's how we get identity, which is more or less what critical race theory is. Right. 
it, right. if you if you deny that that's how our identity is formed and that's that a person who doesn't have this nexus of of kind of oppressed statuses is doesn't have a worthy opinion or can't speak on a topic like you can hear it Jesse and I are hesitant to talk about race issues because exactly. we're two white dudes but right. that's exactly. not to say that we think that white dudes don't have anything to say about race but we recognize and I, I recognize I'm sure Jesse does too it is a little bit weird as a guy who who has never ever once felt like I had to worry about a traffic stop. Like I, I never felt in any sort of danger in a traffic stop. I'm not saying it's definitely not the case that every single black person who gets stopped in a traffic stop is at risk of their life. Like statistically, that's just not reality, but that doesn't mean that that fear is not real. And it's real for a reason. There's a real reason behind what may be a sort of exaggerated fear in some instances. So not everybody fits in either of those polls. And I haven't read the book, but from what I have read about people reflecting on it and the little blurbs I've read, it seems like Shai Lin, as, uh, as a black man in America, is positioned to be able to avoid that sort of hesitancy that yes. someone like Jesse or me has, but also be able to speak in an articulate way that reflects biblical reformed confessional theology. So I'm, I'm excited. Uh, it's, it's definitely on my list of books to read. I'm going to, maybe I'll pick it up and read it when I'm at the beach in a, a month or so here. Um, but yeah, it, it's great. So I, I really, really want to recommend because I trust Jesse's opinion, because I, I, you know, what I know about Shailene, he's a sharp guy who has a, a major commitment to biblical fidelity. Yes. I really want to say, yeah, check this book out. How is it that somehow you gave like a, I would say a better, more articulate <laughs> recommendation affirmation for that book than I did and you haven't even yet read it? That's How'd that happen? I, it's because you teed me up for it. How'd that happen? Well, here's the other thing I think we talked about in our pre-recording meeting. Conference. That we want to try to do a little bit of leveraging here. And that is, yeah. we've been trying to reach out and get Shailene to come on the podcast and talk yeah. about this book because I think people need to hear his voice and hear some of it. And especially, I know I've recommended or affirmed Shailene in the past for his music and that you you got to pick up the Still Jesus album if you haven't done that yet. Why haven't you done that? That was like, who knows what episode that was. It was probably like in the mid 90s. <laughs> There's a little inside <laughs> joke there. Like, was it last week that I said we've been using Zoom microphones since the mid 90s? <laughs> And it sounded like I was talking about the fact that pod Jesse and I have been podcasting for like 25 years now. And what I meant was the episode numbers mid 90s. So you're probably about right when you recommended that. though. So here's here's my theory about why we're not getting any traction getting shot okay. on the show. It's not because we're not a top 50 healthcare podcast or anything like that. Because we are. I think it's because there's so much buzz around this book that it's hard to sort of like get your name to the top of the list where you can actually like where you're even seen. Right. You tweet at Shailene like he's never going to see it. However, if everyone who listens to this episode tweets at Shailene and says, go on the Reform Brotherhood podcast, then maybe he'll see it. So what I want you to do, everybody, because we want to make this happen. Don't be like, don't be sketchy about it. Don't be like, don't Absolutely. be weird stalkers about it. Right. Go be to Twitter. If you have a Twitter account, go to Twitter and follow at Shailin. It's S-H-A-I-L-I-N-N-E. And then just tweet, tweet on his wall that you want him to go on the Reform Brotherhood uh, podcast. And you can tag us. It's at Reform Brohood. And then do the same thing on Moody Publisher, who published the book. Go, go follow Moody Publishers and uh, tweet at them saying that you want Shylin to come on the Reform Brotherhood podcast. And hopefully, if we all do this, we can get him on the show for us to do an interview. 
I think it'd be worth it, loved ones. And just yes. so everybody knows, just so you think that we're not speaking out of turn or going around the bend here, we've already reached out through like the formal channels. And I did tweet Shailen and he did at least acknowledge that tweet and respond back. But then I said like, hey, you should come on the Reform Brohood. And then yeah. I was like, there's silence. And that's okay. He's a busy man. He's a popular right. guy. But I think we, we would have a fantastic conversation. And I think maybe, maybe our listeners in particular need to specifically hear the kind of things yeah. that he's saying. That's why I'm recommending this so hard and coming out so yeah. hot out of the gate. So enough about my affirmation. It's your turn, Tony. What do you got? So I'm affirming, this is going to sound a little weird. I'm affirming other confessions beyond the ones that we normally look at and reference. So if, if you follow us on Facebook or Twitter, which I would encourage you to do, um, you'll see that I've been tweeting sort of like, they're not really summaries of confessional statements. They're more like my thoughts after reading a confessional statement. So some of them are kind of summary. Some of them are me applying a confessional statement to a modern controversy or situation. And one of the things I've been doing is each time I tweet my way through a confession, I go and I find another reformed confession, historically reformed confession to add to the mix. So right now I make, I'm doing daily tweets um, out of the Belgic confession the Westminster Confession. I added a Scots Confession, which was primarily written by John Knox. I've added the French Confession, which was written by Calvin for the French Church in France. Um, you know, Geneva was a Swiss, Swiss, um, a Swiss canton or Swiss city, but Calvin was a French refugee basically in uh, Geneva. He always wanted to go back to France, but he never could because he. he would have been killed probably. Um, and now recently I've added the Irish articles, which is kind of the precursor to the Westminster confession of faith. So as I've been doing this, I've just been getting a more robust understanding and a more robust appreciation for these other confessional, uh, documents and traditions that in a lot of ways kind of led up to the, what we consider kind of like the fully formed modern confessions that we use, you know, three forms of unity, the Westminster standards. So um, check out these other confessions. They're easily available. You can find them online. You can go to um, ccel.org and you can look up uh, Philip Schaff's Creeds of Christendom. And you should have it. That should be a free resource that's on there. I think it's public domain by now. And you can read most of these. Although the Scots Confession is in weird, like old Scotsy uh, language, he, he didn't like modernize the <laughs> language. But you can find you can find it, you know if you do run into some of these ones that are in weird, maybe not weird, but like archaic language or just they have weird spellings you're not familiar with. You can find other versions of them that are updated. Um, so check them out. I think I think for me the thing that's actually been surprising is. I keep on feeling like I'm going to get far enough back in the progression of confessions that I'm going to start finding squirrely stuff. And I just haven't gotten there yet. I mean, I know that it's there. Eventually you find some weird stuff, even like second Helvetica, Helvetica, second Helvetic Helvetica. confession. You find like they, they call Mary the ever virgin. So like, as you do yeah. get further back in time in the reformation, you do run into some stuff that, you know, they kept reforming, they kept on reforming their theology, but even, even something like, you know, second Helvetic confession, um, it's still remarkably solid. So check them out. Um, you can get them online, just search for them. Um, I'm using, I have a book called, um, reformed confessions of the 16th century, um, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's just a collection of those confessions, which kind of gives me like an idea, but you can pick up like creeds of Christendom by, 
uh, Philip Schaff, and he's got it's broken into like ancient creeds, Roman Catholic creeds, and then he's got like Reformation creeds and then modern creeds. So if you're looking for those Reformation creeds, um, but even check out the Lutheran confessions, check out some of the non-reformed Anabaptist confessions. Some of those are actually even pretty good to read. Obviously, you have to be discerning, but just check them out. I think the confessional era was such a fruitful period of theology, and it, it was such a clarifying era where not only was the theology clarified, but it was presented in a much clearer way than theology from prior generations or even following generations was. Uh, it really has helped me to clarify a lot of my thought reading through these things. I think actually this is a, a really great affirmation because people should follow that Twitter account because you've done such a great job of like... So basically this is... Pokemon for reformed yes. commissions. It's like collect them all. Gotta but catch what them I all. actually what I actually love. Oh, sorry, it's catch them all, not collect yeah. them all. Yeah, gotta catch them all. You gotta catch them. Yeah, okay, the main so, character's name is Ash Ketchum. It's like a interesting oh. pun. Yeah, see, every day is a school day for me. So the great thing about the Twitter account is I actually do love that you kind of put them, you summarize, you paraphrase in your own language because sometimes I will read what you tweeted because like, I don't even know what you're going to tweet and it cr cracks me up almost like, so like on May 31st, you tweeted, our God is not some passing fad. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hashtag Irish articles, hashtag I ate. And I was just like, that's great. Like, it's just like a, a commonplace, like a colloquial expression of something that's expressed in a traditional creed or confession. Yeah. And it draws our attention to the fact that, Hey, just so you know, people are believing this and saying this very thing for a long time. Yeah. And it's just great to be exposed to all of them. So if you're looking for a place where you can catch all of the confessions, apparently it's our Twitter feed and that's thanks to you. Apparently there is a pretty cool website called reform standard. Uh, standards.com that is a collection of all the reform confessions and we've talked about the relight app which is made by um, a guy named david and his wife and that's a very good resource as well and both of those have the full confessions and they're you know um proof texted and sub sub noted or footnoted and everything as well so yeah check them oh, out where, where else can you get that that colloquial like tony paraphrase the new tony translation of the irish articles yeah yeah I don't know. That's what only we on call our that. Twitter. The Filipino articles, the the mostly white guy, but kind of Filipino articles. You just if there are the Filipino thing. articles. Did I just did I just offend an entire archipelago yes. nation? Pro it's it's possible. It's probably yeah. the case. Hold that up, I did. we got I, I think we can all stop for a second. Just affirm you used the archipelago right there. That was I amazing. It. I did a whole research project on the Philippine Islands because I'm Filipino. Yes, that's what I was gonna say. So somewhere right now, there are people's minds being blown that didn't know that. Yeah, that's fine. There's probably lots of people that don't know that. But that, more I think that's than great. that do. Yeah, that's great. There's some trivia about Tony. <laughs> he is half Filipino. No, I'm not half. I'm a quarter. That's why I say I'm mostly a white guy. Oh, you're only you're a my quarter? dad was half, and my grandfather was a full full ah, blooded from the Philippine Islands. Philippine. I got you. I got you. I got you. For so. some reason, I thought uh, okay. Yeah, see, that's th this is going to turn into like a strange private conversation, which you're all going to start to hear in a second. So Jesse and I Let's, are going to have to have a conversation later about my heritage. Let's move on. But now people know. It's, it's I think true. it's a wonderful facet of who it's you true. are. It's one of the many things that make you great. Well, let's get negative, Jesse. Why don't you hit me with some with some denials? I'm going to go quick, out of the gate, hot again. I, I'm not sure that I should be actually denying against this because it is part of God's creation. I don't think it's necessarily part of the fall, but I live in a part of the country in the U.S. where there is this, I'm going to say strange, but I think maybe you might equally or also say it's beautiful, bug that chills underground for like 17 oh, years, no. eats 
like the sap of trees and then pops up after 17 years and screams for trees, like a month straight screams yeah gets very very loud then uh mates with others of its kind then just dies and then we start the process all over again so it's cicadas if you haven't if you're not familiar with those just <laughs> pop them into like google image search and you're gonna see some big beady eyed red eyed bugs that are strangely freaky but if i were to open my window right now uh, maybe I should do this as an experiment. But if I were to open the window right now, you would hear in the distance what sounds like a French police car. And it's not. It's just these bugs crying out to one another. So it's I'm just denying it because it's, it's like super freaky and eerie when you hear it. Yeah. And I went for a bike ride recently and found myself in a more wooded area. And I stopped the bike because I thought somebody's fire alarm was going off in a house. And maybe they were unaware or not present. And then I realized, oh, that's not a fire alarm. This it's is the this cicadas. multitude of bugs all around me making the sound. So it's kind of cool, kind of creepy, but it was the best denial I could come up with for today. Yeah, and the thing that makes it a little more creepy is that they name them Brood. It's like Brood X. I don't remember which Brood it is. Yes, that's true. Yes. <laughs> I have to look it up. But it reminds me of like a, like the game Starcraft. You're, you're fighting like the brood and this is like exactly what it is, is it's, it's like this massive clump of, uh, of bugs that come up and they all like, they come up every 17 years so they can count like which brood it is. There's, uh, there's actually been some interesting genetic studies that they've done to yes. show like the genetic variations and they actually think it's kind of like a picture of speciation in process, mm -hmm. which is good for the scientific community because they like they don't even really know how speciation happens. But like you can see as they progress each year that the genetic code and the way that they function, it's different. And like brood brood one probably couldn't braid brood with with uh, brood two breed with brood two. It's a lot of br <laughs> Easy d for words you to there. Say. So yeah, there's 17 year cicadas. There's 13 year cicadas. Yes. Yep. It's pretty. It's pretty insane. It's a strange feature of God's creation. It's a wild thing, and of course, yeah. like in this part of the world, we don't often get exposed to, quote unquote, like that post mill apocalyptic style type <laughs> like insect action. Yeah. But this is one of those things that when, uh, like, even in, in my area, I've seen like trees or roads like covered with these bugs it's such a strange thing to see i know that's a lot more common in other parts of the world so if you're down with the bugs you're probably like yeah it's no big deal yeah. i was just like oh my word what is happening right now so <laughs> i was just like do i need to put lamb's blood on the lintel yeah there post? you go so yeah, yeah. It's, Bible reference. It's kind of scary. There's like a big swarm of locusts in Africa right now, too. This, it's, I guess 2020, not only was it coronavirus, but it was also like one of the most active giant locust swarm years in history. So we're not out of the weird apocalyptic craziness of 2020 yet. We're not quite there, but we're close. It, and that's the thing. Like, if I can tie this together with like Shailene's book, like, this just shows me like there's so many things happening in the world that I'm not only not apprised of, but that like that's in some ways more normal for other people. And that's like a, a real struggle, like yeah. a, a swarm of locusts coming in and just like destroying crops or eating everything in, in sight is like a legit thing. And here I'm complaining about like bugs half that size. They're just crawling up trees and really not doing yeah. that much damage. They're just loud. So it's just amazing. Like I just, I, God's creation and the way in which he has populated the earth with so many diverse things 
to just exemplify his creativity is exceptional. Like it's just, there is no comparison and everything that we process, everything that we, we speak about in terms of diversity is all derivative from the ultimate diversity that God himself holds in his own mind, so to speak. Yeah. It's incredible. It just will blow your mind. So I'm sure there are listeners that have cicadas. So, you know, try to love them as you are able to. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? Let's deny some things. So I'm denying people who think that you can do a full-blown Twitter theology essay. So this comes as a denial <laughs> from a what from an interaction like a that I just thing. had, uh, but also maybe a tactic that will help our listeners avoid wasting a lot of time in fruitless Twitter conversations. So if you've ever run into a provisionist on Twitter, it's like the worst experience. Like I would rather get a root canal at the same time as a colonoscopy with no anesthetics than deal with a provisionist on Twitter. And I don't, I'm not trying to be like overly rude, but it's just a terrible, frustrating experience. So I'm not going to say his Twitter handle. You can go look on our Twitter. It's not a hidden conversation or anything like that. But I ran into a provisionist the other day that said something like, Calvinists don't even know that their system of theology is incoherent. How can God determine that someone has faith and that person still has free will? So one of the things I'm convicted of is that I should try to assume the best of people, especially other people who are claiming to be Christians. So when someone asks a question like this, I try to act as though it's a genuine question and they're actually genuinely wanting to understand. So I had a short conversation with him and tried to explain like, well, God causing the rain to fall doesn't contradict with the fact that there were natural causes that also caused the rain to fall. Some of the stuff we're going to talk about today, we've talked about already. It was so providentially, it was good timing. And Boom. he just kept on repeating the same line, which is usually a sign that they don't actually care about learning or representing the theology correctly. So I said, well, I'm not going to be able to explain a complex system of theological and philosophical presuppositions. Here is a series of six lectures that were done by some of the sharpest Calvinists, reformed thinkers that I know of. I referenced them to the uh, Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference that did a, an excellent presentation on the doctrine of providence and said, if you're really interested in learning, here's a really good place to start. I'll be happy to have more of a conversation with you, but I'm not going to be able to explain like a complicated philosophical subject in, in series of 280 characters. And his response was more or less, yeah, you linked me a resource, but I really want to hear you tell me the difference. So it was clear he wasn't really interested. And so I was able to kind of get that last parting shot. I was like, well, if you want to hear me explain the difference, we actually just started a series on Providence. <laughs> so here you go. So I say that to say like, Every social media channel has its use, and that includes limitations. You are not going to be able to have a complicated, in-depth, philosophical, theological conversation on Twitter. Like, it's just not its not possible. Tim Keller gets himself into trouble all the time because he tries to make these winsome, clever theological statements that end up being rank heresy, and he doesn't even realize it because he's limited in how he can explain it in 280 characters. So... I'm just denying that idea that like you can do that on Twitter. I'm denying people who expect you to do that on Twitter and then act all offended when you say you can't or act as though somehow you saying you can't means that you are insufficient or that they won the debate or whatever it is. So if you're on Twitter and someone wants you to explain something, give them a short explanation, link them to some resources. If they don't want to actually learn, they're not going to look at the resources. If they're interested in learning, they're going to look at the resources. Right. But don't waste a lot of time. It's just not worth the the blood pressure increase that you're going to you're going to get from doing that. 
That's a great denial. And actually, that's a really great bridge into like our topic on this episode, because I think when it comes to providence and evil, part of the thing that we should just be realistic, and I think this is what you're kind of emphasizing, when we have engagements with others, it's okay to make the assessment, does this person actually want to learn something? Right. Or are they just trying to promulgate an argument? And they're really not that concerned. And we ought to ask ourselves, am I a person that's wanting to give the ear first? Or am I really just waiting for my turn right. to speak? And I, I think that it's okay to say like, this is not a fruitful conversation because I know that really all we're doing is trying to become entrenched in our particular perspectives and we're not actually looking to engage in realistic right. dialogue. Yeah. So what you said was like right on. And let me, let me just be clear. Like, I don't think it's a problem for you to be on Twitter and to say, I'm not interested in learning what this person has to say. Yeah, I'm, he I'm here exactly. to advance an argument. Exactly. That's fine. Be honest about that. I, I, yep, I'm not interested in reading your article. I'm just here to point out what I see to be inconsistencies. This is a platform for me to say something, and this is what I'm saying. I'm not interested in the back and forth. That's fine, but don't act as though you are. And if someone says to you, well, this really is a lot more complicated than I can explain on Twitter, then I think Christian charity requires us to say, yeah, they're probably right. This is a this right. is a complicated theological conversation. So I'm not going to expect them to be able to articulate what people write books and like. I, I have not read John Piper's book, but just knowing John Piper as a theologian, I'm not really all that optimistic about his Providence book. But John Piper just wrote like a 600 page book on Providence. So to think like I'm going to be able to explain it in any reasonable fashion in 280 characters is either really ignorant or really like really arrogant on my part. So right. just be smart, people. Like don't waste time with trolls. And this is what this was. This was a guy who thought he had some sort of gotcha statement. And I, I responded as though it wasn't a gotcha statement and tried to forward the conversation. He just wasn't interested, which is fine. I wish he would have said that, so I wouldn't have wasted my time. But whatever, it's fine. But don't be that guy. Don't be that guy <laughs> who does that to people because it's frustrating and it's offensive. And and honestly, like it just doesn't do anything except maybe make you feel a little bit better about your position. But even that, I can't imagine that this guy was like, oh, yeah, that Calvinist, he gave me a link to six lectures. They must not know anything about this. Yeah, because right. we can't fill six lectures if we know anything like it just it just wasn't it just it's not worth your time to do that kind of stuff. And that's the thing that I think people ought to realize is when you provide more information or you say something like, listen, I want to have this conversation with you, but like, I can't do it over right. Twitter. It's just not the appropriate medium. This is like far, there's far too much brevity here. And we actually need to like get into nuance, understand things. That is not the same thing as like somebody responding with like just vitriol or like personal right. attack as if like you saying, listen, it can't be done here is somehow right. like increasing his argument or gaining, giving him strength in his, that that's not that at all. Like this, right. if things are big enough, if things are nuanced enough, if God is big enough, like why would we think that 240 characters, 280 characters yeah, would like, I think. would be able to like justifiably provide a coherent, a cogent explanation yeah. of something very complicated. So yeah. like, we're just used to thinking that, oh, I should be able to like go on and consume my media, like whether it's TikTok or Twitter in like these tiny little sound bites, and that's good enough. I should be able to get all that I need within that confined space. That's just not yeah. true. So yep. it's, that's not a weakness. In other words, it is not a weakness. You know, what is a weakness? a weakness? Our inability what? to move forward from 
affirmations and denials always. in a timely fashion. It absolutely is. Yeah. It, so we're always like, let's some... keep it really tight, like <laughs> 10 minutes and then like 30 <laughs> minutes later. And we're, we're like, oh man, this is going to be the eight hour episode. Yes. So let's, uh, let's keep it to seven hours then. Yeah. So let's do seven hours instead of that. Let's talk providence and evil. And, you know, I think the great thing about this is one, we're trying to exhibit that when it comes to topics around providence, we cannot as Christians, but particularly reformed Christians shy away from complicated shy, not shy land, <laughs> shy like away from, there. but shy land, please tweet him. Uh, we should not shy away from complicated topics. And this I think can be one of them, not because it's complicated explanation, but because I think many people fear to go into this realm and I don't think that we're intending for this to be, let's say, like explicitly or overtly apologetic. It's right. going to take some of that flavor anyway, because we're trying to explain something that in the final analysis, every person must live among evil and find an explanation for it. So you're going to have some that are say, well, God has nothing to do with evil. That's the devil. And he's the catalyst for all evil and suffering. You're going to have others that say something like, there's no rhyme or reason for anything, good or bad. It just happens in the world, and that's simply fate. And then there will be yet others that will believe that man is totally free, and he can do as he pleases. And so consequently, because God made man that way, God does not know what man will do. And so right. whatever happens tomorrow is outside God's understanding. So I'm saying all of this because there's so much literature written about evil, and pain and suffering, which is really a manifestation of that evil, and how in some way this disproves God. And I think like among the most famous are philosophers like David Hume and Bertrand Russell. Actually, I think Bertrand Russell, his book was called, if I'm not mistaken, Why I'm Not a Christian. And he argued that the presence of evil and suffering proves that God does not exist. And so this quintessential traditional argument, this is like the clickbait, right? Like this, right. Is, the, this is the trolling thing that I see online yeah. all the time for like Calvinists in particular is if God wants to stop evil, but cannot do it, then he's impotent. And if God can stop evil, but he chooses not to do so, then he's malevolent. And so what we're actually going to say, I think, is like Reformed theology argues the exact opposite. You know, how do we know something is evil and just unless we have God's law written on our hearts? The very fact that people are angry at injustice, which occurs in our world when hearing of, you know, small children being sexually assaulted or murdered or racial injustice, all of this actually does more to prove the existence of God than to deny it. So there's like an apologetic element to this, but I wanted to set all that as kind of groundwork in the sense that this is intensely practical theology. We're trying yeah. to understand. We're at one point saying God is providential. He sees all things. He works all things for good. And yet there is evil. So we need to be fair in saying we need to understand how we reconcile these things. Yeah. Yeah. And just a, a sort of a word, maybe a word of caution before we proceed. So theological intelligence might be something along the lines of like understanding different doctrines and understanding the facts of theology. Theological wisdom might be something like understanding how those facts of theology kind of interplay with each other and how they apply to most of life. And That's then there's fair. pastoral wisdom, right? And pastoral right, wisdom right. is knowing that not all theological facts need to be brought to bear in every yes. single situation. And so before we dive into the problem of evil, which we did a full episode on, actually episode 79 was us talking about the problem of evil. I haven't listened to it. Maybe we were totally wrong, or maybe we were going to say the same thing. I don't remember. But, it was in the uh, 70s. It was episode 79, yeah. It was in the 70s, which is before <laughs> either of us were born. So 
We must not have said anything that significant. But it is not always fruitful from a lowercase p pastoral you know, uh, perspective to bring the philosophical explanation for evil mm-hmm. to bear in a particular situation. Um, when a person is in the midst of a tragic suffering yes. situation, yes. to come to them and be like, well, God has a plan for this, you know, or like, buck up everyone. Like this is going to be, you're going to, you're going to look back on this in life and realize it was actually a good thing. That's actually probably true. Like I can't think of anything in my life as a Christian when I look back at it and go, man, that was just really, that was just total raw bad. There was nothing good that came out. I, I, there's not a single thing in my entire life that I look at that I can't see God's providential blessing through to bring me to a, a further stage of sanctification or to move me further towards the gospel before I was a Christian. But in the moment, in the midst of that, pastorally, it's not always helpful to to do that. Sometimes the best thing you can do is say, I'm really sorry that this happened to you. I, I understand that this is difficult and that it hurts and it's okay for it to hurt. Like that's yes. sometimes that's the answer. Sometimes it is the answer to come to that person and say, especially if they're a Christian, especially if they're a reformed Christian, to say to them, in this moment that hurts, in this moment that's difficult, it's important to remember and to cling to the hope that all things are subservient to the salvation of the elect. Even Amen. this is subservient to the salvation of the elect. So that's pastoralism. So don't don't take what we're going to say and bring it to like the next funeral and stand up there and be like, don't worry, everybody. God's not involved in the primary and the secondary cause of, right. salva- of, of evil. Like he's, he doesn't ever intervene and cause evil. Like don't, don't say that. Just don't do that. So I wanted to get that out there because it's important, but I wanted to start a little bit tonight by reading a passage that I think actually is undervalued. Uh, what, what's the, fr- the, uh, over under or whatever it is. The, the, we did this for a little while. This was like the version it's of like this a, was, in a bear market. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, I guess. I don't know. There's a, like a, hun- like a finance podcast where they do this. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Uh, I think this passage is not appreciated enough in understanding the problem of evil and then also understanding the uh, issue of God's agency in evil events, how God is somehow involved and an agent in evil events. Because one of the things I think that we miss Sometimes we answer the problem of evil by, as you've said, like by saying basically like God's not involved in that, that that God doesn't dirty himself with that stuff. But when you look at our, at at our confessional documents, and more importantly, when you look at the Bible, that's actually not what the Bible presents, right? God does not, uh, the Bible does not present a God who is absent from evil events. Yes. He, it presents a God who is active despite, and sometimes in the midst of, and sometimes actively through evil events. And so I want to read, uh, this is out of Job 1, and this is immediately after, you know, we've got the the council in heaven and Satan comes and God basically says, where have you been? And Satan says, well, I've been going back and forth on the earth. And God, God is the one, right? That's important. Satan doesn't come up and be like, your, your servant Job is an idiot. You, you are an idiot. I can't believe you think that he's actually righteous. God is the one, almost unprompted, who says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? So God is the one who starts the process. Right. So even though we might be able to explain the rest of this with with sort of secondary natural causation, which we're going to talk about, we have to remember God is the one that initiates Job's suffering in his divine counsel. It's not it's not that he just makes use of the evil that Satan is doing. He actually is the one that puts Job to the fire 
by bringing him bringing his him to Satan's attention. And so in verse 13, this is where where Satan starts to take action against Job. It says, and I'm going to it's a pretty long passage, I'm going to read the whole thing. It says, "Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck them down, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you." While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell among the young people, and they are dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. Right? So what we have is this picture of, we already know the ultimate sort of background cause for this, right? God has has said to, to Satan, have you considered Job? He's he's righteous, man. He, he, he's got it all. He's righteous in my sight. He's blameless in my sight. And little asterisks, obviously we understand that's only in Christ, but, but right. Job is righteous in my sight. Have you even thought about him, right? Satan, the accuser, have you thought about Job? And Satan says, well, let me take everything away from him and see how good he does. And God says, right. go ahead, go ahead and do what you got to do, Satan. And this is the outcome of that, right? And what's what's important in this passage is the outcome in this. This isn't some Frank Peretti novel where the, the angels are over there stabbing people, <laughs> causing strokes, right? I remember distinctly in, I think it's the first one, This Present Darkness, yes. there's this scene where the pastor is about to get voted out of the congregation, and, and it's this big thing, and there's one old lady that the, the demons are certain is going to vote to keep the pastor, and she's the, she's the deciding vote. So their plot on how to stop this from happening, to stop this pastor from staying in the congregation... Uh, is to cause this woman to have a stroke. And so there's this scene where the, the demon who has the power of stroke is going to like stab her in the head and she's going to have a stroke and he's stopped by this angel in disguise, right? That's not at all what's happening here, right? This picture of how spiritual warfare happens in Job is not that the demons are immediately acting upon people. That's not to say that can't happen. We see that in the Gospels, that the demons are actively involved in directly causing right. suffering. But in this picture, it's not that. It's these secondary natural causes. It's it's the evil of the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. It's the evil of this windstorm that knocks down the house. It's the evil of this fire of God that fell from heaven. I don't know what that is, a lightning strike? Maybe it was some sort of divine miracle that caused the, you know, God sent a, a meteor from, I don't know exactly what that was, but it's these secondary causes, these natural causes that cause this. And Job's response is what I find really interesting. He says, it says here in verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And this is the key part. In all this, Job did not sin mm. or charge God with wrong. So right sometimes on. we, as Reformed Christians, we're quick to say, and we'll talk about the confessional statements here, but we're quick to say, God decrees all things. All things happen according to his providence. All things unfold according to the decree of his will. And then we add that caveat, yet he is not the author of sin, right? Yes, right. he is not the author or approver of sin. 
Well, this is a biblical statement. Job can say, the, the Sabaeans stole all my stuff. They killed all my servants. The Chaldeans stole my stuff. They killed my camels. They killed my servants. Yet, it is the Lord that took that away. It's yeah. the Lord who took away my servant or my servants, my property, who caused this suffering that I'm going to have to deal with. It was the Lord who did that. Yet, Job did not charge him with wrong. And right. so we have to hold this tension. This is, if you take nothing right. away from this episode except this one statement, we have to be able to say that bad things happen because God ordains, decrees, and causes them to happen in his unique way as God, yet we are able to acknowledge and attribute those wicked, evil things to God's ultimate causation without charging him with wrong. Those two truths are true. We may not always understand how they are, but they are. So I wanted to start with that because, in my opinion, this is the clearest statement in all of Scripture that explains how this secondary causation works, right? It's that God ordains, in this case, it's more of a permissive ordination, but he ordains wicked things to happen, and he does so through secondary causation, through the greediness and the selfishness and the evil in the hearts of the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. He does it through those things, yet he is not able to be charged with wrong, even though he does it through those evil things. You got us there pretty quick. Well, you know, we, we did like 45 minutes of affirmations in denial, <laughs> so I figured we might as well get straight to it. I'm glad you did, though, because and I want to just quote a couple other uh, portions of scripture very briefly so that people think we're not like cherry picking that particular example. Because actually what we're doing is we're kind of like stacking the deck against ourselves a little bit here because we're saying right. like there is this tension and we need to hold that viably before us. And these are questions that demand a biblical answer. Why evil? From where does it come? And if God ordains all things, then did he also ordain evil and evildoers? So let me just rattle through very briefly, like three or four different passages here, which would help us to explain that. One is Isaiah 45, 7, which says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Or Amos 3, 6, is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Or Acts 2.23, that this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then something like from Ephesians, Paul writing verses chapter one, seven through 10. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So if we look at like this compendium, if we look at this omnibus, we go across the whole spectrum, starting with Job, which you just presented so wonderfully to us. We note several things. First is that God creates calamity. You know, God does as he pleases. God foreknew and predestined the death of Jesus. And God, according to his own purpose, predestined all things, all things, and works all things, all things after the counsel of his will. So I think in some ways, let me preempt this a little bit. I'm going to go out on a limb. I think you and I are on the same page with this, but I'm going to say it this way. To answer this question, did God ordain evil? Did he ordain evildoers? The answer is yes. He foreordains all things. There are no accidents. But 
doesn't that mean that God is the author of evil? Doesn't that impugn God's character? Doesn't that make Hume and Bertrand Russell have a realistic point? If they were on Twitter, they would be trolling us right now saying, doesn't this just prove what we've said? The answer to all of these questions is a resounding no. And the reason is because to even ask these questions proves there's kind of a hopelessly flawed man-centered approach. God is the creator and we're merely his creatures. He is in heaven and he does as he pleases. And so I like what you said. There is a tension and we don't want to move away from saying like we have simple answers for this wonderful, beautiful, glorious, hard tension that exists. Yeah. Yeah, and just a just a side note, right? We mentioned this is good, this episode's going to take a little bit of an apologetics flavor just because of the topic. And one thing that I found super useful, are you ready for this, Jesse? <laughs> I mean, I didn't know we were going to get deep, but I'm ready now. Well, it's not that deep, but it's important. Oh. One thing okay. I found super useful <laughs> in apologetics menus is Bible software, Logos Bible software. So one thing you can do in Logos Bible software, we've talked about, you know, here's this little hint, like we have this sponsorship and we're trying to make sure you understand how great it is. We're trying to emphasize a particular feature that we actually use. Like Jesse and I, when we first started the show, we're like, you know, should we call Purple Mattress and get a sponsorship? Because they'll sponsor (laughs) anybody and we need some money. And we decided we weren't going to take sponsorships. Ironically, Jesse and I both have Purple Mattresses, so we probably could do a Purple. Let's get our people on that. But either way, we weren't going to take sponsorships for products that we didn't actually use and believe in, right? We weren't going to do that. And one of the things that I do believe in is Logos Bible Software. And they have a feature in Bible Bible Logos Software uh, that's called Passage List. And it's it's such a deceptively simple uh, tool. But basically what it is is you can type in a Bible reference and it'll put all of it'll put that whole verse in line and you can filter by it, you can search by it, you can click and it'll go quickly to it. But here's the best part. I now have a, a, a Bible reference list that I have called Evil and Providence. I took thir- like literally like two and a half minutes before I started the episode, before Jesse logged into our Zoom call and looked up these verses, most of which Jesse just said, and then the one from Job I said. But immediately, instantly, that now is on my phone. So if I'm out, uh, if I'm out uh, on Twitter and David Hume trolling me because there's a David <laughs> Hume account, and it's conceivable That's true. that David Hume might troll me. I immediately have access to this list of verses that I've put together that demonstrate that God is active in evil circumstances, but is active mm-hmm. in a way where the the agency of secondary agents or the the secondary causation of agents is not on the same register as primary agents. I have that in a second. So I could create the same list of proofs of Christ's divinity, right? So when I'm walking in Hanover, New Hampshire, and this is a common thing, there's a little stand of Jehovah's Witnesses. They set up there all the time. I haven't seen them in a while, probably because of COVID. But they set up this stand, and they want to talk to people about the Bible. And so when I'm walking by, and I've got a few minutes, and they say, do you want to talk to me about the Bible? I can say, I do want to talk to you about the Bible. (laughs) And I say, did you? And they say, well, did you know that Jesus died for your sins? I said, did you know that Jesus is actually God? And they go, wait a second here. (laughs) I can pull all of that up instantly on my phone, because I've already taken the time to curate that list, to be prepared for that apologetics encounter. And now that resource is instantly available on my phone. And I don't have to try to worry about creating a Google Keep node or a, a spreadsheet or anything like that. It's all there right in the same software. And then I can cling to all, click to all the references that are associated with it. So one of the things I think 
I hope you're learning as we do this sponsorship and we're highlighting these different elements and different tools that, that Logos has is how versatile it is. It's not just for pastors. It's not just there for sermon prep. It's not just there for seminary students who are writing theological papers. It is there for those things, but it's also there for the regular Joe Schmo in the pew who hears a verse during a sermon and thinks, you know, that that actually would be a really good verse to respond to right. this argument that I ran into online the other day with this weird David Hume account about the problem of evil. Toss it in your list, and now it's available at the tip of your fingers. So check it out. You can get a discount on any Lagos, um, Lagos base package. You can get a 10% discount. Right now, they actually have a promotion where everybody gets a 15% discount, but you can get a Boom. 10% discount uh, on our uh, special affiliate code. It's lagos.com slash Reform Brotherhood. In addition to that 10% discount, you'll also get five free ebooks of your choosing from their catalog. Free books. I know. I just want to let that like yeah, breathe for a second. Just let it ring. Free books. Yeah. Sometimes so, we let freedom ring, but instead we're going to let free books <laughs> ring. From sea to shining sea, Jesse. Listen, here's the thing about this conversation that I have with you every week. I never know where it's going to go. I am always surprised. It's, I know. What is this, 242? I mean, nobody knows. Maybe it's 568? It's probably this 568. Is, uh, yeah, it's amazing. I didn't even anticipate that you were going to say that. So let's talk, like unpack this just a little bit more because I'm curious for your perspective on some of this stuff then. So let's talk about foreordination of evil and human yes. responsibility. Because again, I think we're, we're talking about a lot of things in tension. So like, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. Yeah. So chapter three of the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, and I now lost my place. Uh, article, chapter three, article one says, God from all eternity did by the most holy... Uh, wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, right, so this is a restriction clause. That's true, yet, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor is the liberty or contingency of secondary causes taken away, but rather established. And so what this is saying, and this is important, this is the key to understanding the fully orbed reformed answer to the problem of evil, is that God ordains everything that comes to pass, but he does so in a way where rather than, um, and this is why it's important, go back and listen to our first episode of this series, Providence and Aseity, and then last week's episode, Providence and Creation, is the, the main difference, and I kind of teased this earlier on, is that when God foreordains evil, he is never the, the uh, he's never the immediate cause of evil. Right. Right. So so we we talked about last week these two different ways that God inter- God acts, right? He acts in the works of creation, which we defined as sort of these immediate immediate acts that are not utilizing the ordinary secondary cause of of uh, chain of causation. Right. So so causing water to spontaneously turn into wine is not something that happens according to the secondary causes of natural causation. Right. So when we're talking about how God is involved or God is um, I have to be careful how to say this, when God is is somehow involved right. in the ordination or the causing. And I'll say he causes evil. The Bible says that he causes calamity, causes evil. Right. Um, I think it's funny that we try to translate that away from saying he causes evil. Right. right. Actually, like we, we should be fine with saying that God causes evil. Theologically, there's no problem with that. As long as we understand that when this is goes back to our conversations about double predestination and how God's predestining the elect is, is, not any less predestining the reprobate, but doing so in a different way. 
right? Yes. God causes evil in a way where he is never the immediate cause of evil. He is never doing so in those creative interruption ways. So even in the Bible, when we see that God has caused uh, one of the kings, I think it's King Josiah, I'm, I'm spitballing here, but there's this strange scene where one of the kings of Israel and one of the kings of Judah are meeting together. And the king of Israel, the king of Judah is like, aren't there any prophets to tell us what God wants us to do? And the the king of Israel is like, well, yeah, here's all these prophets. And they're like, yeah, you're going to do fine. The battle's going to go your way. And the king of Israel, the Judah is like, uh, are there any other prophets who might tell us (laughs) the truth about what's going to happen? And he goes, well, there is this one guy, but he never says anything good. And the king of of Israel, I'm probably getting some of this wrong, but the king of Judah is like, well, let's bring him in here. And at first he's like, everything's going to go great, O king. And he's like, no, 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 tell me the truth here. And he goes like, it's going to be terrible. You're going to lose. <laughs> You're both going to die. Yeah. And and then someone like slaps him. It's another prophet that slaps him. And right. then all of a right. sudden the, the book like flashes into this heavenly scene. And God is like, who's going to be the lying spirit in the mouth of this prophet? Who's going to tell mm. the kings that they're going to do well, even though I'm going to cause them to fail because that's the way I'm judging them. So even in this accommodated fashion, God is not immediately causing this knowledge, even in that accommodated fashion, when in that picture. And in the picture we see in Job, God actually is accommodating himself and appearing as though he is part of this secondary cause of, of, uh, causation, secondary chain of causation. God is sending a lying spirit. The lying spirit is causing the the prophet to say something that's going to trick the thing. That's a normal cause, normal secondary chain of causations. This person said this to this person. That person believed this thing as a result of it. And as a result of that thing, this event happened, right? That's the secondary causation. But in actuality, when we back up, we understand that God is the the first cause He's never creating evil in this sort of de novo way that we talked about with right. these creative interruptions. There's never an evil miracle as a way to put that. Yes. Right. And that's what we're saying here when we talk about how God is not the author of sin. He's not the immediate cause of sin. He is the ultimate cause of all things, and that includes sin, but he's not that immediate cause. He allows things to unfold or he causes things to unfold that bring about evil circumstances, that bring about evil uh, within the hearts of men. But he's not that primary cause. He's not caused in that initial immediate way. And that's where we draw this distinction. And so that's what this is getting at. His decree, his saying, uh, decreeing such and such an evil thing will come to pass is not does not make him the author of sin. It doesn't invalidate secondary causation. It's actually what causes secondary causation to be. And then I want to go quick to chapter five, which is the decree. This is God declaring what's going to happen. And then providence, which is God actually unfolding what's going to happen or what does happen. And it's in um, chapter five, uh, section four, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in this providence that it extends itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with it a most wise and powerful bounding and otherwise ordering and governing of them, a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only from the creature— And not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. And sometimes when this happens, right, people read this and they go, well, you're just doing theology by like assertion. 
Well, certain first principles, because they're first principles, by definition, cannot be argued for, right? We talk about that when we talk about the authority of the Bible. We all it's circular logic that you say that the the Bible says it's the it's the highest authority and therefore it's the highest authority. It's not circular logic, because if we were to support that with any other statement, then that statement itself becomes the, the, the source of truth rather than the Bible. This is the same kind of thing. There are certain things, because of who it is that God is and what it is that we believe God to be, there are certain things that simply cannot be true of God. And right. that he is the author of sin in any sense is one of those things that even though we affirm this is where that mystery card has to come out a little bit. Even though we affirm that God is the ultimate origin of all things, all temporal created effects ultimately find their origin in God as the first cause of all things. That does not make him the author of sin because he cannot be the author right, of sin. Exactly. If he was the author of sin, then we're not talking about the God of the Bible anymore. We're talking about something entirely different. Right. So like another way we might say this to sum some of this up is while it's vitally important and true that God foreordains all things, it's also equally true that man is totally and completely responsible for his actions. Right. So we pick, let's say like an event of prominence in the United States, you know, though God might've, well, God foreordained nine 11. Right. It's also true that those wicked men acted freely doing exactly right. what they wished to do. So when Adam sinned in the garden, he deliberately went his own way with disastrous consequences to all the world and the human race. And so evil, evildoers, uh, even natural evil, earthquakes, tsunamis, wars, all forms of evil. Evil is really just sin plus suffering. This is all the result of the sinfulness of sin, if that makes sense. And right. so the results of sin are so pervasive and devastating to the world that when tragedy strikes, instead of saying, you know, why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to us? Why did this happen here? We might take the R.C. Sproul approach that says, says, why not? Why is yeah. there not more tragedy in the world? Like even here we see like the restraining goodness of God. So in other words, the consequences of sin are so debilitating that we ought to really marvel that things are no worse than they already are. Yeah. And in his common grace, God constantly, consistently restrains evil. And I like the way that you drew us to a close there with respect to this idea that God is holy. There's not even the slightest hint, even a trace of evil or wickedness in his thoughts, words, actions, values, intentions, or attitudes. And so what that tells us is that though, again, there may be tension here as we try to understand this, we have like an really to go back to like, I th actually, we probably didn't record this, probably like a private joke we have beforehand, but like if there's an infinite amount of like truth here, our finite minds are trying to understand this confluence of the fact that God is foreordaining and that he's not the author. And yeah. so in some ways that only exists in consummate harmony in the regenerate heart, this trust that God is still doing this great work, even in the midst of things that seem profoundly bad. Yeah. And so this means that God can ordain all things, foreordain all things, including evil, but he cannot be charged with evil himself because right. here's what we know. He's of incomparable condescension. It's, he, has, he exhibits inexhaustible love. He's unfathomable grace, unsearchable wisdom, immutable goodness, undeniable veracity, immeasurable immensity, unassailable satiety, like unimaginable transcendence, unrestrictable eminence. This is who God is. Right. And so because of that, it shapes how we understand that he both is exhibiting his providence and that evil exists in the world. I've heard it said this way, and I think this is maybe borders on too 
too close a summary, like too brief a description, but it's almost as if what God is saying is like, this is not the best of all possible worlds, but it is the best of all worlds that God is using to bring about the best of all things. Right. And so in that truth, there is comfort for us. There is explanation for why the world is because the bottom line is for all the trolls have been talking about elsewhere, everybody else still has to explain why evil exists that right. you, you cannot remove that. So just by coming to the Christian saying something like you say you have a good God and there's all this immense poverty and abuse and suffering here, that can't be your God. You still can say, well, then how do you explain it? Right. And really the only cogent explanation comes from the Christian worldview. That That is a certainty. But we're not removing the fact that God is using all these things in a profound way. And uh, let me end this way. There's the last thing I'll say on this subject. Tony, shouldn't we expect that if God is as good and as powerful as he says he is, that he would and should be and would use these things that seem like every all hope is lost, that he can yeah. actually redeem these things yeah. in some profound way to prove that he is good, gracious, and that he actually can bring about something greater and bigger than if everything just went our own way. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's a good place to close. And this is, this is what I'll say is one thing that I find on um, reformed internet world, whatever we want to call that, um, or even just in general, like reformed, like like popular level reformed writing, whether it's blogs or popular level books, we're embarrassed about this truth, right? We, we're yes. embarrassed yes. about this fact. And even I know that you're not doing this because we've talked about this subject a number of times off the air, just as brothers trying to deal with issues in life, sickness in our family, health problems, mm-hmm. financial problems, all this different stuff the evil that's in the world that affects us directly. We've talked about this. So I know where you're, where you're at on this. Even when we're trying to say it, we have this tendency to talk about it as though God redeems the evil. Mm. It's actually much deeper than that. Mm. God doesn't just redeem the evil. God is doing good things that are operative as evil in the world to accomplish a good end. And it's not, it's not as simple. This, this is something I see reform people basically say, they go, well, you can't understand the, the light parts. This was how it was explained in my college course. We talked about Augustine, how Augustine explained the problem of evil, right? If you're looking at a scene, you, you got your face right up against a picture at the, you're at the museum. That was the Boston museum of fine arts is what they use as the example. You've got your face right up against this big giant picture and all you see is black. Right. Well, when you step out, what you see is that's actually a shadow in the in the context of this picture and the shadow demonstrates the light, blah, blah, blah. That's not at all what Augustine was saying, not even close to right. what Augustine was saying. Right. right. What Augustine was saying is that, yes, this is genuine evil. This is genuine bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. He was the, the, the reference he was talking about in this philosophy class was the city of God. Right. The fall of Rome. It sucked. It genuinely sucked. People were murdered. People were raped. People were dying of starvation. Like it was a bad, bad thing. It wasn't just a shadow in a beautiful picture. It was genuinely right. e- genuine evil. But at the same time, on a different register, a different sort of plane of causation, a register of causation. It was infinitely good because it was what God was doing. And so as Reformed Christians, as those in the Augustinian tradition, it's not just Reformed uh, theology. A lot of Lutherans would probably be saying the exact same thing if asked the same question. Right. In our context, we are able to say genuinely 
without without crossing our fingers, right? We don't have to be deceptive about this. Yeah, that's that's evil. That's evil, right? right? Full stop. Full stop. That's evil. When that person raped that person or when that person murdered that person or when that person stole your property or when they caused this bad thing or when you got cancer or when Hurricane Katrina, you know, destroyed your house, whatever it is, right? Right on. That's evil. Full stop. And we can step into that that evil situation. We can weep with those who weep with a genuine conscience, a genuine grief over the evil that's being caused. At the same time, we can marvel at the infinite wisdom and goodness of God, even though we don't understand, we may not understand what he's doing in that. Even, even at the end of all things, we may not understand. Job doesn't get an answer. Right at the end of Job, God doesn't go. Well, actually, you see, you know, I was actually trying to give you right. more than what you started with. That's what that's what Job gets. He ends up with more than what he started with. God doesn't say that was what I was trying to do. That that's not the answer to the book of Job. We can say, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't really like it, but I trust God, and He is good. And even though the evil that happened is genuine evil, the good that God was doing is genuinely good. And that's, we should not be embarrassed about that. I know it's hard not to be, right? It's hard in a conversation with the provisionists on Twitter or the fake David Hume account or Russell Bertrand or whoever it is or Facebook or your coworker who just, you know, lost a child in a car accident. It's, it's embarrassing to be able to go into that and say like, well, God is good. God is good. But that's the reality. And that that truth, even though it's not always pastorally wise to bring that to bear immediately in every circumstance, that's still the truth. And the truth is always a good thing. So, uh, you know, this is another one of those episodes that doesn't have a super satisfying resolution, right? It's not like a Brady, it's not like a Brady (laughs) Bunch episode where everything wraps up at the end and everybody's happy. And, um, you know, Marsha and, and I don't remember the middle one's name that that somehow is like so appropriate that I don't remember the middle girl's name. (laughs) Seems like it just matches the story. All of that said, we serve a God who establishes these secondary causes and those secondary causes. It's not as though he is somehow like, he's not bail, right? He's not in the bathroom when, when bad things happen. He's not taking a nap. He's there. He knows he caused that to happen yet. He did so out of his own good even though the, all of all of the things leading up to it in the secondary causation may have been evil. And we as Reformed Christians, as Augustinian Christians, we can take great comfort in that. Mm-hmm. Because even though we had had a year that just really was terrible, like, you know, I'll be honest, my life was not impacted that much on a direct level from COVID. I don't know anybody personally who got really sick with COVID. I didn't get sick with COVID. My wife and I actually both ended up with jobs that pay more than we had when we started the, you know, started the uh, pandemic. Our hospital is doing well, like all these things. I can still say it was a terrible year. It still sucked. But I can say that this sucked in a way that ultimately is God's good purpose. The, The provisionist or the Arminian or the open theist or whatever new label they want to put on there's the same old God isn't actually sovereign in theology they can't say that. And that that's that's the big difference here. So when we talk about the problem of evil, we have to be able to acknowledge evil exists and we can do so without crossing our fingers, but we also have to be able to say and articulate why it is we believe that even though genuine evil exists, God is also still good in the midst of and operative through that evil. Right on. 
And even though there might be some that say, well, that's not, like you said, a very satisfying answer. It is satisfying with respect to the fact that it comports with reality. Right. That we're acknowledging that evil is actually something that exists. Like in like contradistinction to like Mary Baker Eddy, who would say like, no, evil's in your mind. The cancer right. is just in your mind. And we're not saying that at all. We actually acknowledge that those things exist. And at the same time, we're saying that what is unique about Christianity is we serve a God who is not unacquainted with suffering, who right. leans into suffering, who sends his son who sacrifices that son in the midst of amazing suffering. And the son himself undergoes something, not just of like the human condition, which he does do willingly, but volitionally allows himself, gives up his life, but he gives it up and he undertakes all of the suffering of the separation of the father with the father in that moment of bearing the world's sin on his shoulders. This is what's so different is Christianity acknowledges that sin is real. It acknowledges that evil is present. And we have one who comes into the world to deal yeah. with that head on and is not ashamed by that. And so these are difficult truths, but I would still argue at the end of the day that nobody else can explain them better than God himself, of course, because he's the one in charge and sovereign in his providence over all things. And we Christians need to be a little bit, maybe better broad shouldered at being willing to say, no, 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 no. I can explain why suffering and evil exists, and I can at the same time explain why God is good. That's incumbent yeah. upon us, loved ones, to do a little bit more, perhaps, of processing that and being willing to explain it as the scriptures provide us explanation of it. Yes. Yeah. So I know there's one pressing question that our listeners have after an episode like this, and that pressing question is, did God ordain Jesse and Tony to go like 30 minutes past their normal <laughs> hour. And the answer, <laughs> beloved, is yes, but yes. it's not his fault. He's not culpable for it. Yes. So that's, that falls exclusively on me and Jesse. So without further ado, we're going to wrap this up. Please come back and join us next week. Uh, we're going to be talking about esch uh, eschatology. Why did I say that? Yeah, I think I you always that? want to go to the eschatology. I do. I, 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 I don't like, know what it is. Is that where There's you want to go? Reason. Is that what you want to talk about? Next week, we're going to talk about providence and salvation. And then apparently, <laughs> next, the week after that, we're going to have to talk about providence and eschatology, even well, though I'm not, not exactly sure where we're going with that. Yeah. We'll figure well, it out. Well, let's do it. So until next week, when we talk about providence and salvation, Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.